I thirst. Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Mialis. And I suppose I should be saying a prayer of thanksgiving that if I'm going to have a sore throat for one of the podcasts, it should be for I thirst, because I'm going to sound like I thirst throughout this entire podcast. Today, we hear this in our series of these uh, seven words here in Lent, I thirst, and it's a very human cry. And it's one that some point in our life we've all said, I thirst. So I want to think about the humanity of Jesus today. What does this ancient claim that Jesus is fully human mean? And I I want to um, then spend some time thinking about what the difference in in the divine and the human is, uh, reflecting a lot on other religions and sort of, yeah, Judaism and Christianity as well. And then I want to also think about um, what is the difference then finally between sort of the rest of uh, living organisms, humans, and the divine, and uh, what is really beautiful about Jesus becoming fully human, and what this enables, that if he had just stayed divine, this wouldn't ever have happened. So without further ado, let's get pondering. Tell me love is real. Psalm 69. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me, redeem me, set me free because of my enemies. You know the insults I receive and my shame and dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Insults have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. What makes the gods, the things that are divine, different from humans? Sometimes I'll think about the question of what makes humans different than other animals, but today I'd like us to consider what is the difference between the gods, the God, and humans, us. And I want to reflect on that question because this week the word from the cross is, I thirst. And in many ways, I thirst is an acknowledgement of weakness, of need, perhaps even of mortality, I know I sound like I thirst right now. Uh, One difference between the gods and humans is I don't think the gods get uh, sore throats. Um, But yeah, so we're going to be thinking about this, especially with this word this week of I thirst. My daughter and I really both enjoy the Percy Jackson books. And she really got into them and they opened up the door to mythology, first of Greek mythology, then Roman mythology, then she read all these different series, and she's actually kind of this little 
uh, budding, uh, you know, sort of comparative ancient religion uh, expert. And we were watching then this new Disney series on Disney Plus, the Percy Jackson. And in one of the episodes, um, Percy, who's a demigod, he's a son of uh, Poseidon, and he's uh, just sort of learning the rules of what it means to be a demigod and how the gods work. And so he says to one of the other demigods, Annabeth, who is a daughter of Athena and pretty smart, and he says to her, you know, I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't like it. You know, the gods just seem so, and I, he doesn't quite use the word capricious, but he says kind of selfish, self-serving, vain, into their own things. And, and he, so Percy's really upset to learn that the gods have all this power, but they just kind of seem to use it for their own kind of petty benefit. And at that point, um, Annabeth responds and says, no, Percy, that's just everybody. That's humans and gods. At least with gods, you know that there are finally some rules. And there's something about that where in at least Greco-Roman mythology, the gods weren't necessarily more moral. The gods were actually quite vain, capricious, self-serving, and so forth. And much of their energy was spent seeking revenge on one another, often for petty things. And so this might suggest, uh, yeah, I don't think it's that the gods are somehow more moral than humans. But, okay, fine, that's Greco-Roman mythology. What about the Bible? Wouldn't we want to argue that God is without sin and that we as humans sin and that's a sort of a fundamental line between us? Well, first of all, there are many spiritual beings in the Bible besides God. We uh, want to, uh, and we teach that the Bible is monotheistic and that there's one supreme Lord creator of all things. But when you start to dig around, there's a lot of other spiritual forces. There's obviously uh, the devil, there's demons, there's angels. And, you know, there's lots of then, again, these demons, and demons aren't always doing the good thing. So there's spiritual entities in, in Scripture that aren't necessarily moral. And so the, the divine, either we have to carve out a category of things that are not human and kind of semi-divine, or, right? Or we just would have to say, no, that doesn't seem to be the, the line. Furthermore, there's a lot of stuff that God does in the Old Testament especially and even in the New Testament, that we might have trouble saying is good. Uh, for instance, the command of Abraham to sacrifice his son. Or even ultimately, some theologians really have a problem with the fact that Jesus has to go to the cross at all. That there seems to be a willingness of God to dabble in, deal with violence. Unfortunately, the creator of the universe is the one who both has to seed the world with mercy, but also bring about justice. And sometimes those are countervailing aims. And uh, does justice look like good to the one who is being punished for what they've done and so forth? I want to push against a simple distinction 
of saying that humans are evil and the divine is good. Uh, of course, I would argue that, yes, God is the source of all goodness in the universe and that anything that God does, if it doesn't look good to me, that's just because I don't understand the whole picture. I definitely would in faith say that. But I don't think it's uh, so easy to say that the spiritual forces of the universe are only good. Um, or, or is it fair to say that humans are only bad? Humans are capable of really amazing uh, moral things, uh, great sacrifices for other people and even people out of their kin or sort of faith group. So, so I, don't, I don't think uh, whether it's Greco-Roman or, um, or even Judeo-Christian, I don't think we'd simply want to say that divine equals good and, and human equals um, immoral. I, I don't think that's the distinction. I, I think the um, distinction has to do with death in that the beings, the divine beings in, you know, say Greco-Roman uh, or even Egyptian or even Mesopotamian, that the divine, they didn't die. You might die as a human. Well, you will die. But, uh, you know, you might live in Athens and it might flourish for a time. But whether or not you exist, the belief was that Athena would live on. When Hercules, for instance, is rewarded for all of his labors, it's, he's rewarded with immortality, becoming one of the gods. Likewise, even in Judaism and Christianity, all of these spiritual forces, the angels, the demons, and ultimately God, they are eternal, or at least, the, at least God and the angels are eternal. Um, there see, it does seem to finally be an end for the forces of evil. But if you notice, Jesus never kills any demons. He just expels them. Again, there seems to be a way in which um, evil lingers beyond the lifetime of one individual. And certainly, again, the, the messengers of God do this as well. But humans, well, humans die. And what kind of shows this too, if you just think about... Um, sort of maybe even more big picture. For most of us, when we think about um, there being a spiritual realm, and even today in our sort of secular society, very few people are strict materialists. Most people say there's, you know, something greater than ourselves. And how do you access that spiritual dimension or realm or plane? Well, the way you do it is by dying. Death is that wall between us and, and sort of something greater, the transcendent, the divine. And the other way to do it is to worship. But worship in the ancient world consisted of a sacrifice. There had to be a dead animal in order for you to reach to the other side. That I think, again, for sort of most of the human experience with religion... What really separated the gods from the humans, the spiritual realm from our realm, was not necessarily morality, but mortality. And the, it was really about death as sort of, again, this divider. And even for religions or cultures that had a sense of the immortality of the soul, the body definitely stopped. And once people were gone, they couldn't come back, especially not 
in human form, unlike the gods who could masquerade around again and again in human forms as they would come down and intervene in, in human affairs for all sorts of their pet projects. So when Jesus says, I thirst, I believe this is an acknowledgement, an admission to the world, or perhaps a celebration that he is becoming fully human. And we heard in the beginning of John's gospel that um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if God is going to take on flesh, incarnation, well, again, flesh can die. Uh, We see here when Jesus says, I thirst, he's acknowledging that he has become uh, truly one of us. And the great Christian creeds want to say that, or the ancient teaching has been that Jesus was fully human. And in order to be fully human, uh, Jesus must die. And for me, you know, why I'm a Christian, this is really getting at it. The, the mystery and the scandal of the incarnation that God chooses to become one of us, to take on our death. And in the Super Bowl this year, 2024, they have these He Gets Us ads. And, you know, really liberal people and really conservative people get all angry about them. Whatever, I'm not going to go there. But for me, I don't think that the divine can claim to understand what it means to be a human uh, until it has faced death. Right? If, if divinity doesn't know death, then can really a divine, a savior, a redeemer, a lord really claim to know what it means to be human and, and to live with this uh, reality, with this, this specter looming over your head. So I think there's a way in which Jesus' death uh, allows him, or in the reality there, to become fully human. I want to, though, now pivot and think, though, about this question that I said I normally ask, now that we've solved the difference in, in humans and in gods, and that is namely that humans uh, die, <laughs> um, I want to think about what makes humans different than other animals and how Jesus' death on the cross allows him to become fully human in a way that um, not the gods could be, nor even could animals be. Okay, And I wanted earlier with the morality stuff to kind of say, hey, being a human isn't all bad. And one of the things that humans have um, th- that I would say is unique among animals, and it's it's not really what um, it's not, it's not really a divine attribute, uh, and that is that humans can have faith. Again, humans can have faith. The gods can't have faith because they really don't ever need to trust another divine being. In part because within the Greco-Roman stories, no other gods are trustworthy. But, but also because if you never are going to die, you never really have vulnerability. I mean, okay, you might get banished to some island or some place, but a thousand years later, there'll be a change of which gods or titans or somebody else is in power and you'll be back. Or in Egyptian mythology, eventually you may be banished to the lowest levels of Ma'at, but eventually you'll work your way back over time or so forth. So... So again, you, don't, you can't trust these other 
deities because again they're not moral but but also because they um you don't need the trust you have your own superpowers and you can't die but as humans who face finitude who face death who know real vulnerability who know what loss actually feels like that our whole life is one of wrestling with death we have to live in faith we we have to live in faith um, that things will get better. That when we say goodbye to our loved ones, that we will see them again. We cannot bring them back. Um, so when it comes to again the reality of death, which is so austere and so daunting, the gods don't ever have to have faith. But we as humans who know death, we actually have to have faith. And, and animals uh, simply worship the creator by, by being who they are and waking up and participating in the cycle of life. But animals don't have trust. Um, they, they don't sort of uh, live by a word of promise from, from another. Um, certainly not a word of promise from the Lord. So... So humans have this beautiful thing called trust where we can know and endure great amounts of challenge and heartache, um, even death itself, because we believe, we trust that God will redeem us. Well, Jesus on the cross here, now for the first time, has to trust God. And what I mean is that the rest of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is healing people, he's doing phenomenal things, he's helping people, but there's never a situation that is out of his control. I mean, Jesus has had help. You know, the, the angels tend to him when he's in the wilderness battling demons, but um, he never has had to call. He's, he's, he knows that he can do uh, all of this, right? There's never been any sort of question. But... Now, when confronted with death, he, he has to, like the rest of us, live in a situation that is greater than his power. Uh, he cannot raise himself from the dead. He is having to commend his spirit into God. He's having to give it over, trusting that God will redeem it. And it's interesting here that there's a fulfillment of Scripture passage, or that John lets us know. And it's very likely Psalm 69, which is, um, which at one point, uh, Psalm 69 uh, says that they gave me gall for food and vinegar to quench my thirst. But all of Psalm 69 is really a psalm of great faith, of this, of this humble prayer um, of somebody who's suffering to say, but God, you will deliver me according to your steadfast love and, and goodness. So again, Psalm 69 is a psalm of, of faith. So I want to uh, suggest to you here that what, what happens here now is that Jesus becomes fully human in the best way, in that he demonstrates what, what Adam and Eve could not do. He fulfills the first commandment to have one God and to fear, love, and trust him above all things. And, and he's able now to live by faith. And this is how God intended it in, in Genesis, that we would live by faith, trusting God each day to provide.
And again and again, whether it's the man in the wilderness or story after story, the challenge is always for the people to live by faith. And they just don't. And they just stumble. But here Jesus is showing the best of what it means to be a human. To redeem us is to live in faith in spite of the true obstacle of death, but to trust God to deliver him.